This presentation was given at the Monastic Conference on the Environment, Gethsemane 3. The title of the talk, What is Science Telling Us Today? Given by Dr. Stephanie Kaza. Well, actually, that's a good segue. I have some free things, too. Um, I was going to say this at the end, but since we're on books... Uh, as an environmental studies professor, I get sent sample exam copies of textbooks all the time. And so I brought a, a sample of that. I must have two dozen of these. And so if it would be useful to you or your um, monastery or institution, uh, write your name down somewhere or send me an email, and, and I will happily send you one of these. They're of varying quality. Some are paperback, some are... But, but I, they're probably none of them are older than five years, so they're... They're very useful for these basic kinds of overviews, a chapter on energy, a chapter on agriculture, and I thought this would be a great place for... So you can look through that one if you like, and I hope someone will take it home. I Also, I taught a, a, this class on unlearning consumerism this spring, and a couple of students wanted to recycle their readers, and, and they just didn't want to keep them, so I thought I'll bring those here <laughs> to the first two. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, okay, I'll give them to you, and you can, other people can fight with you over them. You I may. more gadgets than me. I'll give this one. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, I forgot to tell anybody ahead of time to put my book in wherever you could buy it, but this, uh, this book is Buddhist Commentaries on Consumerism, so I did bring a few copies of that, and I can just sell them to you at the wholesale price. And there's more to be had, but, um, and some of the various members of people's different communities actually contributed uh, chapters to this, this book. So, but now, from our short commercial pause, what, you know, being completely inundated in a commercial culture, some seems like even if you're giving things away for free, you still have to advertise. Um, so, now you've, I heard many different uh, stories of, of beauty and pathos as I walked around, and I think now we are in the territory that we're gathered here to discuss. Um, there will be many things we won't solve in two days, but we can uh, all support each other in trying to understand how to work with them and to share some resources uh, among each other uh, to help uh, in pursuing the individual things. And this, so I just throw that out as a little bit of a caution because when we walk into the world of environmental concerns, there are inevitably more than any single human being can deal with. It's sort of the territory. It's a global and national issues. Um, the good news is that many, many, many people and organizations are, are working on this. And uh, one resource I'll just mention right now, but because uh, it's at the top of my mind, is a, a website called Wiser Earth. And it's a listing of all the nonprofits in the world. It's from Paul Hawkins' book, Blessed Unrest. And what Paul Hawkins tried to do was, um, he everywhere he spoke, he's a... a a kind of new new age ecological economist who's been a, an entrepreneur in California and is often asked to speak around sustainability issues. And he said, I think there's a movement happening, but nobody's calling it anything. And so he, with a team of uh, research assistants, um, cataloged, made a taxonomy of the 100,000 NGOs in the world. And the book has about a 30-page index in the back of it which he said right up front will be coming out of date as soon as the book is published. So it's also cataloged on this website, and you can search under any topic you want, and you'll get the list of 
NGOs and by area and what they're doing, and it will have links to their website. So it's a phenomenal resource that is just now, you know, in the last six to nine months, been up online. It's, I think it's wiserearth.org, and the book is Blessed Unrest. So he takes a kind of spiritual metaphor for the fact that people are responding to these concerns wherever they find their calling, whatever the issue is locally, and that they're working collaboratively with other organizations in the area. Some are religious, some are environmental, some are social justice-based, some are democracy-based, some are educational initiatives. And he's pulled the whole picture for us uh, together for us in a, a really useful way. So I was... I was uncertain whether I should include lots of live links in this PowerPoint but where we could flash to other places. But now, because I didn't know how you know, wired Gethsemane was, and I guess we'll have some more further discussions about whether getting wired is a good idea or not in a monastery. Um, but to return to this talk, I said the first half was kind of the threats, the uh, threats to biodiversity and to ecosystem health and then to human health. And in the second half, I want to give you a couple of analytical tools that are working really well around the world, and they're really easy to remember and talk about. So they give you a kind of place to position yourself and your understanding. And it's a, it's a useful balance to the emotional reactions and the spiritual reactions in the sense of kind of moral concern. We can use these tools, um, these scientific tools. So the first one is the ecological footprint. How many people, let me just ask, have heard of the ecological footprint? That's really good news because that means that the concept is really spreading. It's not, not that old. It's really about 15 years since it was really promulgated. Um, but because it makes so much sense, it's really caught on. So um, technically what it means is the load that's imposed by the given population, so whether that's a city or a community or a nation state, so you name the actual population, on nature and specifically on the land area. So when you, I actually have students try and do their own ecological footprint, and there's an ecological footprint quiz that's been standardized on the web. And then you try and map it yourself. How many acres or hectares are you personally uh, needing for your energy production, for your food production, for your shelter? So to both uh, your needs, your consuming needs, and your waste discharge needs. So how many acres do you need to get rid of the human waste or the solid waste or the hazardous waste? So it's a, a metaphor, uh, and it reveals something about the scale of people's uh, footprints. So if you look at the Ecological Footprint site, you can see calculated footprints for all of the world's nation states, and you can see how they are relative to each other. And a number of these have been used for green planning, like in the Netherlands. They've used their footprint analysis to figure out what will we plan for our host state. Some states and regions have done this in the United States, but we haven't uh, seen it implemented on a wide scale. But it's also useful at a personal level. Now, I put up another, there's another couple of words. One is ecological wake, which is like the impact kind of like in a boat wake behind you. But I like the ecological shadow particularly as another metaphor because it includes the moral costs. You know, when you think of a shadow, you think of the dark looming behind you. So we, we, we bruise our way forward into harvesting things and growing things and building, you know, oil wells and so on. But behind it, we know there's ecological and economic costs, but there are also moral costs. And some of you were talking to me about that. How does this cost our spirit? How does this cost our relationship with nature? How does it cost our ethical sense of righteousness? And very often we don't know what those shadows are. And then once we find out, then we have more of a choice, of ethical choice. 
So the ecological shadow, what is that? Now, think of who's actually doing the consuming. Um, well, uh, the big five here, mm-hmm. 75% of the Earth's biocapacity, if you say the land area or the resources, are uh, who you might guess, China and India as growing uh, consuming nations, European Union as a whole uh, area, not any single country in Europe. Japan, a very resource-intensive country, very big production economy there, and then the United States. Um, and so I just put a few of the numbers down here just for those uh, five. So you could see this, the footprint per person, and just relatively to their share of the capacity. Uh, China and India are still remarkably low, but they have very big populations. So their total impact together is about the same as the United States. This is new. If you had done this five or ten years ago, those figures would have been dramatically different. But as China and India have just surged in the scales of their economies, they, they must be thought about seriously in terms of carbon emissions and every other factor here. Um, but in almost any one of these lists and charts, the United States always holds the, the bottom or the top position. It's really incredible. Uh, so that's good because that gives us, we've got a big job here and plenty of work we can do right here in the United States. Uh, but it's helpful to get, get the kind of global perspective. Now within, uh, I didn't put this on here, but within any kind of a group of consumers per, per country, uh, there's a famous figure called the, the champagne glass figure, very skinny long stem and then a big wide kind of mouth of the glass like a champagne glass. And if you divide that in fifths, the world's populations into fifths, the very poor at the bottom, hardly making any impact really on resources. And then the next uh, three are sometimes lumped together as kind of the middle consumers. And they have relatively um, low-impact diets, low-impact housing and transportation. And it's the top fifth that pretty much, you know, consumes 90 to 95% of the world's resources and also generates most of the waste. So that's, in terms of consuming classes within any country, it's the high-consuming class that you really want to look at. Now, that used to be just the developed world, and you would look across to, okay, what's the United States, what's Australia, Canada, Europe doing? But now within all the developing countries, there is a high-consuming class. So in Brazil, there will be the very, very wealthy and even in all the African nations, which has tremendous impoverishment, there will be the consuming class. So it's a global consumer class. And they are used to global consumer hotels and Wi-Fi and gourmet foods, etc. So you can both think of it by nation state or by region and by kind of a socioeconomic class. Now this just kind of graphs it so you can visually see by color. So here's North America. The number is the population, how big in millions, uh, in North America, Western Europe, Central, Eastern Europe. And then um, across the bottom gives you a sense of the, the so that's, this is the size of the population. So here we've got 3,000 million, so comparatively speaking. But this is the, the impact of the footprint. So the footprint is very high in North America, even though it's a smaller population. And per person, the footprint is lower in Asia. But of course, if you turn that on its side, it's it's commensurate. So... Uh, the, you can either have a lot of people consuming less in a region or you can have fewer peop- people consuming more. But this is the total global ecological footprint. And when you uh, analyze it according to how much actual biocapacity there is, 
um, in most places we're overusing what exists. There's, it's said that if everyone in the world consumed like North America's, we would need four more planet Earths. So we're, we're very, we're over consuming what we actually have and we've been able to do that in North America because it's a very well endowed continent. It has, we didn't, the, the United States per se arrived on a, on a relatively healthy set of ecosystems here. They had not been severely um, abused. Uh, so we, we've made up for lost time here. Um, so let's look at the American footprint. Since we're the biggest consuming nation, even though China and India are, are catching up in their own way, and this gives you some more specifics about the United States with 4.5% of the world's population consumes 26% of the oil, 24% of the aluminum, 20% of the copper, etc. You could do this for all of the world's goods. On average, we consume about a quarter of the entire world's resources, even though we have under 5% of the population. And then in terms of waste that we produce or toxins, 50% of all the toxic wastes, and again, a quarter nitrous oxides, these are all the air pollutants, sulfur oxides, CFCs, CO2. So we have a very big responsibility. Whoops, that was a close call. Um, to, uh, to, to uh, observe and notice that and then consider whether it's, uh, it's fair or just. And then climate justice arguments focus right in on this, on the scale of the footprint relative to who's produced them. Some say that we actually all have this national disease, affluenza, a very stimulating film to, to watch, you know, with congregations or to read the book. So here's a few of the facts that I gleaned out of, out of that book. They're all shocking, but they are kind of useful for springboards of action. So the first one we just discussed, but imagine that just since 1950, you know, half a century, we've used more resources than anyone who lived on the earth before then, anyone on the whole planet. That we spend more for trash bags than 90 of the world's 210 countries spend for everything in their whole entire economy. Trash bags, which don't really biodegrade very well and are out there floating for the turtles. Though happily, a few countries have decided to ban them now. Watch out, this is a new trend. Americans drive twice as much per capita as a half century ago and fly 25 times as much. And that's slightly old data, you know, maybe 10 years old. So that's both probably higher twice as many shopping centers. What does that tell us as high schools? That our 102 million households from this point in time, this is from this book, Affluenza, contain and consume more stuff than all the other households throughout history put together. So just imagine that three-car garage, McMansion, and its extra storage spaces somewhere off-site, et cetera. So, um, so we know this already. These are just a few figures about our very big footprint. But is this the only religious perspective we would want to have? <laughs> I don't think so. May we continue to be worthy of consuming a disproportionate share of this planet's resources. <laughs> no, we must, we must be able to come up with some better prayers. So um, I, I started with this footprint idea because it's something that uh, even if you don't have the exact figures or you don't know quite how to calculate it, um, on an institutional level, you can try to do it metaphorically. You can say, well, what's the footprint of Gethsemane Monastery? And you, you analyze your own flows. You analyze what's, how many gallons of water? What's our water bill? What's our electricity? How many units of electricity are we using? Food, etc. You could have a sustainability committee on your monastery or in your institution, pull that information together and just look at it 
and, and then be able to decide, are there any of these we could change in any way? Of our food flows, could we uh, make different arrangements with local farms to buy more local produce as opposed to uh, buying all canned or frozen goods or, or produce from, you know, thousands of miles away. It's just a way to analyze what's actually going on and then have a place to make different decisions. It's not a, this is not the last judgment day in which you, you know, go good, bad, good, bad. It's just to say this is what is right now in our monastery or in our institution and where could we go from here. What kinds of, and we can share some of our best practices across these couple of days. Uh, can we have a day where nobody drives? Like I think, is it, is it your monastery that does that, Avgir Giri? That we don't drive. Yeah, on one day a week. No, we shut our computers down. One day. Shut their computers down one day. Well, that's that's something. I, I heard about this somewhere, but um, making choices that change those flows and those uses of the resources different energy choice and so on. So the footprint analysis, I actually think, is much more valuable on an institutional level than on a personal level. If you do your own individual footprint analysis, you can make some uh, changes, but you're still embedded in a system that's going to keep driving you towards certain flows you don't have a lot of choice about. You know, the energy portfolio was determined by your local utility, uh, et cetera. Um, mostly where you can make those choices are on food and transportation on a personal level. But as an institution, you can make different energy choices and uh, water choices and and, uh, generate a a kind of uh, fever about it. Now, this is happening. Talk to me about this independently. I didn't want to put all this on the same talk, but uh, in the universities, the campus sustainability movement is enormous, and it's caught on like crazy, and the, and the campuses are all competing with each other, and they each want their new green buildings. And I, I really think that uh, religious institutions could easily construct a counterpart movement. Um, and ours has been really galvanized by these environmental councils and by a, a, a group that just formed called, which is another really excellent website, American I mean, uh, Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education, A-A-S-H-E, AISHE. So you can go to the AISHE.org website, and they put out a weekly bulletin, and every week it's like the peer pressure is on. Duke signs new agreement with solar company. You know, um, University of Vermont puts in new solar panels. Uh, Columbia installs new, you know, green building. And you just see like 20, 30 news announced bulletins every week of campuses around the country doing all this stuff. Uh, so you can get that news bulletin for free if it will stimulate you. Um, but you could so easily have the same thing. You know, such and such a monastery installs a... So the I think that the religious sustainability movement is just you know, moments behind this campus sustainability. We have been just awed by how the students have picked it up and really moved uh, so fast. So footprints at the institutional level really can spur action. Now, the other tool I wanted to give you is this IPAT equation. It's been around forever, and it's been variously modified, but it's easy, really easy to remember. Um, So I is for impact, environmental impact, and then the equation is P times A times T. So uh, population, so the number of people doing whatever they're doing, t- times the affluence. Now, I think you could measure this in different ways. It's currently being measured GDP per capita. That's a pretty broad number. But again, you could work at whatever scale you wanted to. So how, how much consumption going on and how uh, much impact from the technologies involved in the consumption? How fast can they get that oil out of the ground? Or how... 
how uh, quickly can they uh, harvest with some super combines. So whatever the technology is, whatever the level of consumption, whatever the population, you can begin to see the combined impacts of them all together. So I'm going to look at some examples of all three of these to sort of play it out. But um, uh, some people say that other factors you need to take into account, this was actually from that same Gus Beth, uh, the Yale dean, mentioned these aren't really in the equation yet, but he says you really need to look at what's the degree of poverty. And, and these are more sort of policy-level things. So that's for the social sciences, the political sciences, the governments. Are, what are the markets doing? Which thing, ways are the markets driving things? Which ways are the cultural values driving things? So I wanted to put them up there because so you don't only leave with this. This is a, an imperfect equation. And it may just be, for example, that cultural values are, are the most important part in the equation. And that if you're part of a cultural institution, you can really use your influence uh, to leverage towards tipping points. So, um, so they're important to keep in mind. So let's look at uh, some of these drivers. We'll start with the population, and here's the classic curve, you know, the J curve, it's called. And that's because it's the shape of a J. Population was slow, slow, slow. This starts at 500,000 B.C. or something. So let's get all the way up here. Here's where, you know, Christianity and Buddhism more or less begin. And even then, population is still growing very slowly, and the only real dip here is the plague, and then... Uh, it rebounded quickly, and the curve is just going up, up, up at a very, very steep uh, increase in the modern age. So some of the pressures, I, this is, again, a little bit uh, artificial, but the developing in the developed world, they're quite different population pressures, and it's not just in one part of the world. So in the developing world, we know there's high infant mortality. People need to keep fertility rates high because they're using the family labor. Um, we've got tremendous urban squatting settlements in all the big cities of the world uh, without sewage or garbage service, sometimes no water or any energy either. Struggles we mentioned already that uh, are between populations within a country or within a city or between classes. You know, wealthy people taking away the resources of the poor people for their use. And I mentioned about the family planning limits. But we experience population pressures too. Increased traffic everywhere, increased encroachment on the land being sold off uh, for fragmented housing development. Um, competition for jobs is now a really major part of what's happening in our, our own economy here with things being outsourced away. Uh, so it's a different kind of a population pressure, but we can name it similarly uh, as population. Here's another way you could map it. Just thinking of the big cities, so the little, the smallest of the circles is 5 million, the biggest is 35 million. So this is a projection going from the darker red, 1984, to uh, the lighter, 2025. So you just at a glance can see where are the kind of exploding urban populations. And as I said, um, this is half the world's population now. So if you're going to do or think environmentally, you have to think in terms of these urban population centers because they use so many resources and they are so complex to uh, support with infrastructure just to manage the ecological systems. Some of these big cities like Mumbai or Bangkok are growing at a pace faster than they can build the infrastructure to support the population. Um, and So just in terms of urbanization, you can see what a myopic view we might have in the United States around big cities and urbanization because it's not nearly so dense as, say, in India or China. 
those two countries alone have tremendous urban needs to work with. Now, this, this is a little bit outdated, but it's a whole different way to graph it. I like these kinds of weird maps because they show you uh, where they're, they're not literally geographic, but they show you who's having the greatest impacts and who's growing the fastest. So, you know, we think we're pretty important, but our population growth is still much, much less than India and China. At the time of this book, that was, which was, I think, maybe 10 years ago, China's growth rate was 20%, India's 16% natural increase. And that's that's an increase, not a growth rate, I'm sorry. That's the increase between 1996 and 2000. So in a five-year period, the population grew that much. And the other big country down there, Indonesia. Um, so some of them, some are much smaller. Europe's still, you know, pretty contained. Africa's been so beset by diseases that it, its growth has mitigated the other direction. So in terms of having a global view, uh, there are certain places that need could use a lot more attention and a lot more support. And I know a lot of environmental groups have been trying to set up partnering situ- uh, organizations in China and in India just exactly to do that. So population. The other one, consumption or affluence. And that A for affluence doesn't quite get the whole picture, so I switched over to consumption here. So in the developing world, the consumption pressures are often from a lack of consumption, lack of food, starvation and hunger. Uh, low food security, high waste of malnutrition, um, cash crops replacing subsistence crops. So they're growing a cash crop for the economy, for the market, but they're not growing food they can actually eat. Um, and a lot of our the wildlife is being hunted. Bushmeat hunting is now uh, very popular and, and commonplace and f- flooding the markets with the meat from, the, uh, from local wildlife. Lack of water we've talked about and high rates of poverty. So when you're very poor, you go farther and farther for your resources. So that's sort of cutting the wood farther and farther away or having to walk farther and farther for water. But in the developed world, similar kinds of pressures of um, consumption. Well, who did somebody said in one of the groups here, we're a Walmart community uh, or the wall, we're Walmart America, that kind of consumption. But we actually do it with our infrastructure. We have these perverse subsidies. I don't know if you've heard that term, but... Subsidies that support things that are actually ecologically harmful, like all, all the big agriculture, the farm bill that's been <coughs> debated for months and months and months with the hope of getting more support you know, at the U.S. level policy-wise for organic agriculture, sustainable agriculture, has been fought every step of the way by the lobby for the big five, the soybeans, the corn, the rice, the uh, cotton and wheat. They get all the, the national subsidies, even though they're making the most profits. So that's a kind of example of perverse subsidies and the energy development as well. A lot of subsidies for developing more oil, for developing more natural gas and not for the renewables. So this is a, a consumption pressure coming from, our, our, from the policy level. And if, uh, the cheap food imports as well as clothing imports, all of our cheap imports set it up so it's very easy to consume. Um, and it's, it would be hard to pay the full dollar for any of these things anymore. It's too, we can't even make you know, clothing in this country uh, and be able to afford to buy it. So we're in some, some pretty big double binds around our consumption. Now, just to, get, just to focus in on energy consumption, because that's one that's driving so much else, as usual, U.S. is up there as the highest per capita user in the world, consuming five times more energy than the average global citizen, 10 times more than the average Chinese and 20 times more than the average Indian. So just comparatively, 
And the richest people using 25 times more energy than the poorest. So there's not only a big wealth gap, there's a big energy use gap. And this surging demand in China and India. So if you look at just the U.S., here's what we're consuming. Imported oil, domestic oil. So you can see by the pie charts, nuclear. Renewables is still only at 6%. So if you want to see a change, that's the one to grow and the others to shrink. But all the others are fossil fuels. And, you know, we've used them hard and, and we will use them up soon. And our energy use, here we go, is industrial. is a big chunk of it. Then our transportation, residential and commercial. So, um, again, you know, we, if we're thinking nationally, what could or should we be doing to reduce the transportation segment of that? And you all know that public transportation's really had a hard time in this country. It's been systematically destroyed, even in certain places like Los Angeles. And so um, we could right now have bullet trains crossing the country, like in Japan or Europe, but we don't. So there's, again, lots that we could, do, lots to do here. No shortage of things to do. So now let's look a little, a few technology examples. And um, then I want to be sure we have plenty of time for discussion. So again, developed world, uh, in this case, I you know, put them up on top, but we have a curious thing where the more uh, the more technologically efficient we work out one process, instead of it enabling us to use fewer resources, it ends up enabling us t- to harvest more resources faster. So we use the efficiency gains to actually cause more damage in most cases. So it's a, a kind of Faustian bargain. Um, we have very cheap credit. Lately it's gotten a little bit tighter with the mortgage crisis, but... It's made it impossible to invest in all kinds of really terrible schemes, you know, for harvesting things. Very easy to do that in this country. Um, and our environmental regulation, as many of you know, the last seven years have been uh, badly impacted by the... Uh, I could go on, but um, <laughs> but you all know. <laughs> it's, in, it's in every possible sphere, the Forest Service, the EPA, the agriculture, at, at every level. So... The good news is that probably that will change, you know, in November. I can't predict for sure, but I think the cumulative impact that everybody knows about is is going to show in the polling place. Um, And then this fossil fuel bubble wonder. In the developing world, uh, the infrastructure technologies are limited or they just, you know, they're always running out of parts or they only get partial things. They're not appropriate technologies. So it's a very incomplete kind of technological advance. Some places will switch completely to cell phones and not have any landlines, for for better or worse. Some are able to do cheap computing, some not. Sewage is a big issue. I know in India there's sewage plants all over the place, but they're always breaking. And uh, so the sewage will work for a while, and then there'll be big pollution problems. So, And then these cash crop dependents, the, the structural adjustment policies from the World Bank are having a tremendous impact in terms of what gets grown and why. And uh, a term I'd just like to introduce to you is information poverty compared to information privilege. When uh, we're used to strong privileges in many areas, but information privilege in the U.S. is this access to everything on the web, everything electronic. Researchers in Central America actually will are glad when foreign students arrive because then they have access to all the the information available, you know, published peer-reviewed scientific articles they can't get online. Uh, they they not only can't get it, but their electricity infrastructures are so uneven that um, the computing facilities are always going down. I mean, constantly, like every day for periods of time. And so you lose stuff or you, you know, can't get back to it. I mean, imagine trying to have that as part of your... So 
So they're information poor and information rich countries as well. Um, so just a couple of examples. This is Wyoming. This is what parts of Wyoming look like now, uh, where the, the latest energy extraction is coal, ba- coal bed methane. And this is a very shallow coal seams, and uh, it's a lot cheaper to extract. Uh, to, the methane is held in place by the overlying aquifers. So the way you get to it, and there's, they think this is maybe a 15-year supply, so that's, that would seem like a lot of in- energy. Um, but the way you get to it to drill one well is you have first have to release the pressure of all the water above it. So that means here in Wyoming's pretty dry, 75,000 liters of water per day from one well. And those are all, those aren't all bed, wells yet, but they're like, here's a well, but here's a bed for an exploration. So they're, they're checking to see where can we get, get this. Um, but the water, rather than being able to be used, it's just dumped. And it carries the toxins from the methane below and the other sort of oil field debris. So, so far, 12,000 wells have been installed. This is all in the last decade. 39,000 more proposed. And this is right in the major migratory paths of the antelope and the elk. Which, So we've got environmental groups working with hunting and fishing groups who are very, very concerned about the impact of this on their, both traditional lifestyles and on tourism. Um, and on a sort of sense of the way of life of the Intermountain West. So at, at what price, you know, cheap energy? So this is a, a technological driver here because the technology of getting the coal bed methane, the better it gets, the more um, the incentive to drill. And in case you didn't know this, these mineral rights, so-called mineral rights, are owned by the federal government. You can This could be somebody's all personal property here, but if they've declared that this is a time to go in and drill and check for these uh, cheaper energies, you've basically lost the mineral rights to your land, and, and this will uh, just go in there. Same with coal beds or oil, everything. Now we can think about food production, just a couple of things to jog your memory. This, these hens are at least actually out of cages, but um, in most factory farming for meat production... <coughs> This is a whole story, of course, in itself, and very well explained in Eric Schlosser's book, Fast Food Nation. been a number of very good food books that have come out, Omnivore's Dilemma, at sort of what price cheap food would be the issue, too. These are, you know, disease breeding areas. If you talk about chickens, you've got all the practices, cutting the beaks and so on, and high antibiotic use. Beef, it's another, another whole domain about um, the food that goes to the beef and the... Uh, the manure fields and the stream poisoning. And antibiotics, again, is a real concern. What we're using to keep them clean is now no longer working on human beings. Uh, And then hogs and the hog production, um, again, manure. And uh, one of the recommendations that comes out over and over again in any of the sort of how you can change your consumption is just simply eating less meat, not even necessarily with no meat, but just reducing the meat consumption. Meat has become so cheap through these factory farming production methods that meat consumption has risen. Now, another uh, way to think about food is how far it's being shipped. And so here's a little diagram of Britain, local foods versus imported. So these are things, um, if you ate only all British, for example, and you tried to get everything 48-kilometer range, they were comparing to... Blueberries shipped from New Zealand, 18,000 kilometers. Broccoli shipped from Guatemala, not guacamole, 8,000 kilometers. California strawberries, 8,000, etc. So what people are doing now is uh, 
starting to calculate the food miles of something. And this would could be part of a footprint analysis, right? You could look at your list of what you've bought for the institution and see which which things have high food miles and which thing have low food miles. In my class, my unlearning consumerism class, I have students keep a food log for three days and they analyzed everything they ate by amount of packaging, uh, degree of production engaged in it, and uh, the miles, the best as best they can estimate. This is all kind of guessing. It turns out that, um, of course, exotic fruits like mangoes and pineapples usually have come a long ways, but it's usually the beverages that are almost always high impact, high food miles. Tea, coffee, and into North America anyway. Those are all being shipped from China, India, South America, Africa. Cocoa, same thing, uh, and meat. All the meat products and all the beverages tend to have the highest sort of impact overall. So many different ways to think about food. Carbon emissions, we're going to start to see carbon analyses you know, of food products. It's not, not only um, the food miles that would determine this, but it's the amount of production. So you could buy something very locally, but it might have used a lot of energy to produce it. So it's a little more complicated than just the miles. Now, I, in terms of water that we talked about, I wanted to show you this example of China's uh, dream, great dream. They did get the Three Gorges Dam here on the Yangtze, eventually put in, and displacing over a million people and many farmers. But what they want to do now, they've been dreaming of for 50 years, we'll see if they do pull it off, is the South to North Diversion Project. Now, it's not only China that's had these kinds of dreams. Just to put it in perspective, Southern California has always drooled over Northern California's water. British Columbia would like to sell its water to, you know, uh, states to the south. There's, wherever there's a, uh, a water poor area, it just looks, you know, like, say, to the Great Lakes. Well, there's some water. How could we get it to us? So this kind of damming and diversion uh, project is, is something that people scheme of technologically. So this one would bring water from the Yangtze up to Beijing, big population center, uh, 13 million, fast-growing northeast region. They, they've already pumped dry the Yellow River. See, that's the one closer to Beijing. But right now, already, 400 of China's 670 largest cities don't have enough water. So what kind of impact this would have if you took it out of the Yangtze? Who knows? It would be the world's largest water movement project, $60 billion, I'm sure that would greatly increase over time, $60 billion, twice as expensive, Three Gorges, three major canal systems. And, of course, when you go that far, you're going to have to take the water up and downhill a few times. So then you have to pump it, which takes a lot of energy to get it to lift the water literally over the hill. And then there'd be many aqueducts. And since the aqueducts would have to cross a lot of things, highways, streams, rivers, you'd have to build you know, go on, up and down with that too. But that, they anticipate this would move 45 billion cubic meters of water um, over 1,300 kilometers every year. A tremendous amount of water. And I think we have, they don't do environmental impact statements over there. They don't have a, a NEPA law. So I don't think anybody's really calculating the impacts. They're mostly calculating the benefits. This would enable Beijing and the other surrounding uh, cities to um, develop their economies even further and support all the populations that are there. But obviously there would be huge losses of species and ecosystems and who knows about climate impacts when you're changing major river systems. One of the big concerns is how to even keep the water clean. If you're shipping it that long a distance, it's picking up air pollution, it's picking up water. So then you have to process it again when it arrives. 
Um, myself, I just wonder, aren't there possibly other ways to recycle the water locally, you know, cleaning it, rather than having to ship it and then reclean it? So I, I threw these couple examples up here to see how big we're, how, the sense of scale we can think of as clever human beings um, coming up with ideas to work with a very complicated um, ecological situation. So in any given, given uh, this is an analytical tool because in any given situation you can then look at, well, what are the, is it a population factor that's driving this? Is it an increase in the number of people? Or is it an in- increase in consumption? Should, which part of the equation should we look at? Or is it a technological one? And it will de- determine then which way you would approach it. So a lot, all these technological ones, you'd have to work at a policy level and at some kind of a very collaborative scientific level to even begin to make a dent. The consumerism level, you might be able to work at a personal or an institutional level. So, so a lot of working with environmental problems is finding where to work is the appropriate scale and what system to work in so you can be effective. Because uh, if you don't rationally try and think that through, then you just throw your effort at it in any way that appears in front of you. And, and we, we need to be efficient in the way we, we use our effort. So um, let me offer here uh, Gus Speth's uh, an- analysis of what he calls the eight transitions to sustainability. And, and with sustainability as a goal, we would take all of these trends that we're able to analyze, we have tools to analyze, and we would use the policy and the science to orient towards uh, sustainability. So one would be in stabilizing the world population or even decreasing it, and actually this has made more gains than we might have anticipated 50 years ago. Population rates have, uh, growth rates have dropped. It's still growing, but the rates of growth have dropped. And the single biggest key that we found out now is education for women. So where women are, know how to read and have access to health care, they can manage their families much better. Um, but the other part of that is a, a real need to increase the security of the family. If you need to have, you know, give birth to 10 kids to be sure you can uh, care for yourself in old age and manage the farm, etc., and, and expect that a few will die from disease, that's not a very fa- strong family security situation. This word security, by the way, is turning up all over the place, and it's very useful. Food security, carbon security, environmental security. And uh, I put it in here as family security because I think it's a, a link to the family values conversation. That I think that may be what's driving a lot of that concern is the, the need for a sense that the, the family unit can be secure and that that's a, a sort of foundation for all of society's security. Eliminating mass poverty. Poverty, because it has such an impact locally on the environment and because it's such a driving force for the uh, migration to the urban settlements. This will take a lot of support from developed nations, a lot of generosity, a lot more than we've been doing. The U.S., again, is one of the lowest among the donor nations. Norway, all of Scandinavia are very generous. A lot of Europe is much more generous. This is an understanding that if we invest in the poor nations, we all will be better off, Um, a kind of tithing, in a sense, of what we have to offer. But it also means stabilizing the governments because where the governments are, are wildly unstable, Rwanda, etc., you, you simply can't accomplish anything ecologically. So these are roles here towards sustainability. Um, environmentally benign technologies, there's a little smart car from Europe. It's just beginning to appear over here. Uh, 
this is a very hopeful arena. Actually, there's been a lot of creative thinking around certain concepts like green building design. We know there's a whole green building council and there's green building certification and it's very popular. And so the whole field of architecture is going through, you know, uh, massive change. My own guess is that it won't be that long before green building is the only kind of building. I mean, why have non-green building? Why waste energy? So it's a revolutionizing the field. Public transport, there's some fabulous technologies, too, that can easily be employed. This BRT could go anywhere. It's, uh, it was developed a lot in Brazil. Bus rapid transit, it works just like a subway, but instead of having to build the tubes and the subway trains, you just set it up so buses have their own lane and they can pick people up and drop them off very fast. You've already bought your fares. So it's working very well in certain areas. Cradle-to-cradle thinking means instead of cradle-to-grave, where you start with the resource and then at the end you just dump all the waste, means you see a no-waste, a zero-waste kind of uh, scenario. And um, now, of all places, rock concerts are trying to go zero-waste. And there's companies that will put on your rock concert, the zero-waste and take care of uh, everything for you to, so that it, there's nothing left over at the end. So this is another way of promulgating these ideas. So uh, I find my students love to think in this arena, and we're expanding our engineering school just to do this because it's so hopeful, uh, if you can think of a different way to do it that doesn't cause waste. People will want to use it. And consumers, by the way, generally want to use these new things if they're made accessible and easy. If they can get them, they'll you know, have access to them, they'll use them. We, uh, this is a small example, but we decided at, as part of our campus sustainability that we would try and make riding the bus free for the students. We actually pay for it at the university, but we made it as an incentive thing. And within two years, the bus ridership just soared when they realized, oh, all I have to do is take my student card and I can get off and on the bus. So making it easy for people to do stuff like that. Full-cost pricing, now we're sort of leaving the area of science, but this is the new world of ecological economics, where instead of thinking that, oh, whatever impact it makes on nature is outside of where we are, um, you include that in the way you analyze things, full-cost accounting. And, you know, implement measures like green taxes, and instead of taxing, um, say, salaries, why not tax pollution? You shift the tax burden. All right, four other arenas, sustainable consumption. This is also uh, uh, really taking off like crazy, the thing like eat, eat local, a lot of product certification. You know, every monastery, for example, could decide to buy only fair trade coffee and or only fair trade shade-grown organic coffee. Those are all, there's a whole eco-labeling website, and you can look at hundreds of labels and see are they real certifications or are they just bogus, like the word natural. There's no certification for natural, but there is for organic. Um, in Europe, the new REACH legislation has, is regulating all kinds of toxic chemicals in a way that we aren't there yet with the United States, but it's going to uh, mean that our companies, our, say our computer companies, will pr- be producing materials of a certain class to be able to sell them to Europe to meet those legislated regulations. And either they'll make all their products the same and we'll get the benefit of that, or for a while we'll be getting the second class products because our legislation isn't as strong. But I think in time we'll want to harmonize that just because it's easier on business. So a lot happening in sustainable consumption. Green knowledge, I've been you know, going on about the camp sustainability movement. Environmental majors are exploding. There's a big cry among young people for green jobs training. And they did actually, I think that's in one of the latest bills. I don't remember if it was in the agricultural farm bill or somewhere else I was reading about. I get this uh, green wire daily uh, update on what's happening in Congress. And so... 
actually there's a lot more happening than we know about. So it's, uh, it's, uh, the green jobs message is getting across. This maybe is the hardest uh, transition to sustainability, global environmental governance and cooperation. That's a lot to manage. You know, the UN getting people together, conferencing, science, um, and the Kyoto Protocol, we know the U.S. was left out of that. So what will the new agreements be? Who's going to lead the way? Um, I'm hoping peer pressure will be the primary uh, form here because human beings being what they are, they're competitive and they want to be the best. And so if somebody's doing something good, let's try and keep up with them. Uh, so that's where I think the European Union will really take the lead. The United States at the moment is not an environmental leader. We really were in the 70s and the 80s. But um, we've lost our ground, but that's okay because other people are still moving ahead and we'll catch up. I have great faith. Um, and then the last one I'm most intrigued by because it uh, leads us, takes us to our last topic, the role for religions. What, what about our transformation of consciousness? What, what will it take for us to think sustainably? Uh, and, and one place this conversation is really arising is in the Earth Charter where people spent 10 years trying to formulate and that's a, a wonderful resource again, too, just to talk about in your congregation and look at the principles of ecological integrity and peace and justice and democracy that are, are very carefully wordsmithed there. So let's close with our, our topic for the rest of our, our discussion here, what role for religions and um, we'll, uh, we'll be able to carry this con- topic on for quite a while. But I, I wanted to give you this frame again developed by one of the State of the World authors, Gary Gardner, and he has a little book out on, uh, that, that goes through all this. But he sees five rules for religions. They can use their moral authority to really speak uh, to you know, the ethical aspects of their religion and environment and can certainly engage interfaith initiatives like Interfaith Power and Light, one of my favorites, and, and generate religion science dialogues. They offer meaning, of course. Religions have long tried to think about what was meaningful. And uh, this could be a time for really bringing out the worldviews of our various religions that support uh, care for creation. That's a whole movement. Um, or relook at the do- our religious doctrines. Uh, like I said, this is all, I teach a class in religion and ecology. So we could talk about every religion in every one of these arenas at great length. So please do uh, do that. Um, Galvanizing the membership of faith-based groups is huge, and so uh, you know monastics may be the sort of uh, the catalysts for for many other faith-based groups where they can both be a resource and an example and a kind of a spur to uh, galvanize you know the huge numbers of Catholics in the world, etc. Um, many churches are converting their their institutions that the green sanctuary movement is a real movement you can look up green sanctuary get your little guidebook and figure out how to make your actual physical structure and landscape uh, a greener place um sharing physical resources i i love this when um uh, monasteries retreat centers churches temples open their grounds or consider spaces like cemeteries for how to how to i i just before I left yesterday morning, heard my graduate student's defense on the green burial movement. So uh, maybe churches want to set aside some part of their cemeteries to be a green, you know, free of vaults. And that's a whole other discussion right there. So I'm way up on that one now. So tell me, come talk to me about green burials. Um, or building, you know, collaborating. And this, as I said before, collaboration is, is the way to go. It's the only way to do environmental work. And whether that's on the web or whether it's locally with your, your local environmental groups or church or school groups, they're just, you can do so much more collaboratively.
So I'll just kind of leave what, you know, future do we really want for our world? Whose world? Who are our partners in the world? Who are we caring about in the world? And leave you with this piece from the Earth Charter, uh, many beautiful words in the Earth Charter, but a kind of galvanizing sense from the preamble. We stand at a critical moment, a time when humanity must choose its future. As the world becomes increasingly interdependent and fragile, the future at once holds great peril and great promise. So to move forward, we must recognize that in the midst of a magnificent diversity of cultures and life forms, we are one human family and one earth community with a common destiny. We must join together to bring forth a sustainable global society founded on respect for nature, universal human rights, economic justice, and a culture of peace. And those are the four areas that the Earth Charter covers. Towards this end, it is imperative that we, the peoples of the Earth, declare our responsibility to one another, to the greater community of life, and to future generations, to think through time as well as space. And the spirit of human solidarity and kinship with all life is strengthened when we live with reverence for the mystery of being, gratitude for the gift of life, and humility regarding the human place in nature. So that leaves us with a lot to think about, a lot to talk about, and uh, at least... 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, however long you want to go on, to have a little conversation among ourselves, which I know will continue through lunch. And we're due for a little break before lunch, is that correct? So I just want to make sure I've... Uh, I don't know where the schedule goes from here. I haven't memorized it yet. Well, well we're sort of flying um, by chance here. Let's, let's take maybe 15 minutes for some comments from the audience, and then we'll... Have a break before lunch, which is at 12 noon, I believe. I think I'll just flash back to, to those uh, things because that might help springboard our conversation a little bit. Please, just speak as loudly as you can. And, and, and you can also speak to the whole group. I mean, I can answer yeah. questions, but I don't feel it has to be a Q&A uh, particularly. Punadamo from Arrow River Thunder Bay. I'm I just going to comment on that the previous list, the, the, the list of the eight, uh, mm-hmm. eight areas of... Or, Sustainability? Yeah. Transitions? To tra- um, I'm surprised there isn't one there on uh, conservation or, or, or doing with less. Or, you know, uh, I think that's um, the sustainable consumption is definitely doing with less. And uh, the, the stable population is going to make less of an impact on the on resources, so it, this is just one person's kind of categorizing of these. There's there's many different visions, but this is the way he spoke but, but, of it. But if, if, you know, that number five, sustainable consumption. Mm-hmm. The the things that are actually listed, except for for eat local, eat less meat, but yeah. in general, it's more like doing things differently rather than doing things doing less. This list, any of these lists could be much longer. I just, they're all just examples. Yeah, they're just examples. They're not comprehensive. This is not a comprehensive talk. <laughs> You're in the back? Yes. All the way in the back. Uh, I'm Ron Epstein from the City of 10,000 Buddhists. Thank you for the wonderful summary you did. I know it's not, not easy. Um, I must admit that I'm, I'm a little disappointed that you were given this job, which doesn't give you much to talk about your 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 specialty, you know, uh, Buddhism and, and ecology. And in regard to that, I, I wonder whether you could just very, very briefly uh, say something 
about um, uh, maybe the, the specific contribution from, from your concerns that uh, Buddhist and Catholic monastic communities could make to maybe uh, not only get up to speed with the rest of the environmental movement that you talked about, mm -hmm. but make some contribution to analyzing the kind of uh, uh, deep ecological causation problems and how to uh, model solutions to them. What I, what I mean is, uh, we talked about uh, consu consumerism and that there's a lot of technological fixes that people uh, are working on, but there's the basic problem of uh, uh, this, this consume craving for uh, consumer consumer goods to uh, make us happy, which doesn't work, and that uh, you can't get people <coughs> to just change their lifestyle because, uh, you know, it would be good for the planet, you know, they may compute up here, but unless you have some way for them to do it and, and, and have some concrete modeling of some other way to live with different values, then it's not really going to work. So. Well, what do you I think some of the things that monastic communities could do in a, in a very concrete way to model a different way of relating to the environment for a, a small community? You know, I'm going to actually hold that question because we have a couple of other sessions in which we'll really be addressing that. So, because um, there's a lot I could say, but I think we all have a lot we could say about that. So. Let's, um, I think our afternoon session pertains to that and some sessions tomorrow as well. So I'll contribute along with others. And, and in terms of consumption, this was a couple-year project. So this would be the simplest way to get the, the Buddhist impact of that. And I do have another book coming out at the end of the year called Mindfully Green that uh, has some relationship to that. So we'll hold. Yes, um, here by the window. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> my name is uh, Ajahn Sona. I'm from British Columbia, Canada. The part that was green on the map. <laughs> 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 it's actually red now. Uh, the, what I, I've been given in the last few years some talks specifically on this. And one of the areas that specifically that monastics can address is anxiety over the ecological. The, the possible impending disaster. Mm -hmm. Why don't we present people with all of these <coughs> statistics and facts and, and so forth? It, it is a can be oppressive mm -hmm. uh, on their their psychology. And they're already stressed. So I thought, we, of course, we make our monastery is as green as we can possibly make it. We do the the actual physical example, but per, perhaps our unique contribution from the, both the, the mm -hmm. Buddhist and Catholic traditions, understanding the nature of the mind and its anxiety in dealing mm -hmm. with potentially disastrous situations, that we, the internal ecology of the individual mm -hmm. is to be addressed. Are you, is your heart green? Is your head cool and your heart mm -hmm. warm at the same time while mm -hmm. you're imbibing mm -hmm. so many external scenarios? So I give, I, I give talks about remaining cool and green mm -hmm. in the midst of this uh, stress so that they do the fuel that they operate on to address these issues is, is, is fuel that doesn't burn out their engines. Mm -hmm. So that's for monastics, mm -hmm. that's one, something we can mm -hmm. really, we really specialize in mm -hmm. is the internal mm -hmm. ecology. Mm -hmm.
good. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm Scott Kyle. I've uh, accompanied Dajan Pranadamo, Ontario, Ontario, up in Canada as well. And I think, Dajan Sony, you make a really good point. It's, um, you're, you're sort of getting at the last point of the presentation, which is about uh, transformation of consciousness, which actually, um, ironically, isn't, isn't uh, can't really afford to be a long and gradual thing anymore. It needs to be almost instantaneous. And I think spiritual communities, if we have them within religious traditions, um, and, and there's, there's not necessarily great spirituality within religious traditions always. There can't there can be a nucleus in there. And um, but w what you say, of course, is is, is the much needed areas. We we need to actually transform our very consciousness. How how we do this is uh, one of the grand mysteries, perhaps, of humanity. Uh, if, we, if we if we would stop. Kind of stringing up our spiritual teachers and gutting them down, we might get somewhere in that area. But the real work in terms of building community, whether it be spiritual or religious community, or community in your actual neighborhoods, is the nuts and bolts of like we. It, it, it's great to try and transform our consciousness and sit in meditation, and be within spiritual community and be in a good way, in the inner. But there are those of us who are trying to do the real nuts and bolts and the gritty, grimy work of of of. Um, standing up to what I call corporatocracy. And that, that would be one thing that I would like to, um, you know, I, I, um, your, your presentation was excellent and comprehensive, and I thank you for it. But I think this is something that we need to be aware of, that there's, that there's a, a dark corporatocracy running this planet into the ground. And, um, and when we see, I think we need to make a vital connection between the war machine that has been going on for centuries and um, it's the fence around the riches. And it springs from a fundamentally flawed consciousness, which is uh, perceiving the world as essentially and vitally a material place rather than a metaphysical reality based on love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I will just add a, a postscript to that, that one of the more powerful uh, pieces and zones of activism is, is in interfaith uh, corporate investment, shareholder action, that's really picked up a lot of steam. So there has been a place that that's happened, but we can talk more with people. In the, in the very back, yes. They speak loudly. In Buddhism, we talk about interdependence. So whenever we talk about that kind of terminology, we know that humans who are so independent and um, uh, we talk about ecosystem yes we're so interdependent with our ecosystem and uh, through the, uh, the animals we interdependent with them too so um, we have to take the standpoint of uh, how to deal uh, how to teach each other as writer uh, that uh, have powers in Nevada's 
that some uh, evaluate the list, try to get it off that. But anyway, so if we um, consume less meat, we could say that the energy process, especially for the water, crunches uh, down there. And on the top of that, um, if we, in, in my higher Buddhist talk, if we don't eat meat, that's it's easy for us to regenerate our compassion mind towards our animals, towards our ecosystem, towards other people. So that is all. So what yes, Bettina, please. Regarding the uh, response to a natural disaster, I've been working with the professor of geography at Delhi University, who specialized on disaster in India. And mm. she was interested in a project in traditional responses to disasters. Mm. So I gave her all that material from the tradition, mainly from the Hindu tradition. And what came out, I mean, this, if the book is in the press, um, and what I also understand, these traditional responses, which come from religious background, uh, what you read in the media are mostly scientific analysis, why the tsunami happened, and there was this place was uh, shifting, and that's why there was a... Uh, earthquake and so on and so on. But to have a dialogue between these traditional responses with the scientific, mm. and that's also what I understood from your talk, that the traditional religious responses to this whole situation and the religious from the different traditions, including the very simple people, the tribals and so on, what they understand, what happens when the earthquake is taking place. So I think this is a very important another kind of dialogue which uh, which has to be encouraged. I'm Marcus Muff from Rome. I just would like to share one experience with you. I was a business manager at our monastery in Engelberg, and I know many other monasteries and the way they are making business. So I only talk about <coughs> Benedictine monasteries, not for each Benedictine monastery, but the ones I know. The main problem for us is <clears throat> how do we want to, ex uh, to make expenses? <clears throat> so we want to get everything without paying for it. <laughs> That's the way monasteries work today. We want to get everything without paying for it. Many of our monasteries have schools, have seminaries. So we want to attract students. We have to have low prices. And we have to look for budgets. So if you want to invest something, for example, to generate electricity with a water system, uh, it's not possible. There is no money for that. If you want to, to uh, buy good food for the kitchen, it costs more, like a third more. There is no money for it. If you want to have buildings less uh, warm, like two or three centigrades less warm during winter, everybody feels cold. So you have to rise the temperature. I think the main problem is that all what you said is very important, and part of it is also known. But between knowledge and act, there is a huge gap, mainly in the monasteries. So sometimes I got the idea, as we would drive over to uh, about two different tracks. Mm -hmm. One track is the spirituality, as mm -hmm. is its call, and one track is our real life, 
that is not very far away from what everybody else is doing in our country. So I think very important would be to bridge the gap and to, to, to bring together our spiritual life and our real everyday life. This would be my thing I would like to share with you. As, a, <laughs> as something I have lived for 16 years and I live it now in Rome in verse. <laughs> you see, I have to spend hundreds of thousands of, of, of US dollars or whatever every year for economy, and it's very, very hard to do things better than they, than they are done in everyday's life. So we have to convince our communities that uh, the goals you have taught us now are very important, mm. and we have to spend our money according to these goals, mm. and not just talking, talking, talking about that, and doing something else on every day's life. That's what I want to share with you. Would anyone want to comment on that in terms of what one or another of your monasteries might be doing to bridge that gap fairly well? Please, okay. Yeah, well, we've done a, you know, our dedicated, most of our, I recognize one thing. The first syllable of both words economy and ecology are ECO. Mm -hmm. And it's, it means that from Oikos, the house, your house, has two parts to it. As long as you recognize that both of them are necessary. So we we spend more than we should on, on solar panels and reducing our energy so, so and we make a green monastery and then we we tell everybody about it so that as an example that you can follow so we, we do uh, stretch our budget in terms of ecology but there will be a return ultimately because economy and ecology have the same root they, they are not separate and what I, I give seminars called economy and ecology the harmonious household but also I give them the image that you're not just going towards deprivation. You're going towards a much better uh, way of living by incorporating economy and ecology together. Ultimately, you'll have a better result, not a worse result. Yes. Others? Yes, please. Here. I think if we don't change the course of the conversation, I'm going to be out of business Friday morning. So <laughs> I'm going to change the course of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, you know, the further we go along on this, I, I think I want to bring it back in a little inside, a little bit more building on what you said. Um, and that's, um, I, I increase my mindfulness of my own lack of awareness and my own responsibility and my own relationship to the world around me when I face these issues and I'm more aware of the, of the world and um, how I relate to it and how my community relates to it and my responsibility <laughs> to it. And I'm more responsible for the political impact around and I, I've become more aware of that. And it's an awesome responsibility. And when I heard you speak, I'm sorry, I forget your name, but... There, there's so many strands and rivers that flow into it that I can become overwhelmed if I think there's the war front, there's the economic front, there's the ecological front, you know, there's so many ways into it that I can become more fractured in my approach rather than more peacefully centered to 
to work toward, you know, another mythology and approach this. And um, that's where prayer is essential to me to to make me more still and mindful in, in how I'm going to approach this. But the point is, I've got to keep moving. And I cannot be defeated by all I can't do. But mindful and dedicated to what I can do and how I can encourage those around me to move with me. And that's one of the great things about these moments, what I learn, what excites me, and what I feel around me. Victoria. Um, well, I was just reading the I Ching the other day, and there was a comment by, supposedly made by Confucius, and he made a distinction between uh, people who influence, the hexagram was influencing, people who are able to influence or manipulate others, if they do so only by their words, they can only impact people who hear their words with whom they directly speak or who hear their words. But he said the superior man or the sage who has, I guess, deeply integrated um, some kind of understanding actually can influence many more people way beyond what the words, uh, beyond what the words themselves can uh, touch. So it seems to me that in a monastic setting, people might be able to appreciate that uh, if if we or they um, go deeply, or like into prayer, or have some kind of deep, sincere motivation to to have to become ecologically responsible then there should be some kind of impact that goes beyond the dollar sign. Or, or there should be some kind of maybe even faith that uh, the impact of what they do, even if it costs a little more, will, will be positive. So I think if there's anyone who might be able to understand that, it could be a monastic situation, sort of like what you said, even if you spend more, there will be some kind of impact to it. And it, and, it, and it comes from a place that's not always worried only about the dollar, but that, that makes use of the dollar somehow in, in promoting something much that comes from a, a deeper um, conviction that even if it costs more, if it's helpful, it should be done if possible, something like that. Yes, okay. Dominic, please. I just, I've been kind of sitting and listening a little bit, and, and I have, have seen growth in different areas from people like you were saying back there, doing the example showing, and as you just said, speaking sometimes at specific area, you know, will impact there, maybe not out in a broader reach, but in a narrower one. Uh, but but part of the frustration for me is that you can speak and give example, but you still have a great part of human existence that doesn't even want to believe that these things are impacting us in the world, you know, on the earth we live on. And uh, as somebody that's been educating students mm -hmm. and that 
Is, is it just going to come down basically, and I don't know if you can answer this, is it going to come down to just the simple fact that we're going to have to have attrition and these mm -hmm. generations that you're teaching right now are mm -hmm. the ones that are going to make the difference in this? I mean, Gosh, let's see. I have no crystal ball here. Um, we don't really know how it's going to come down, but uh, often it's a, com it's a common experience in terms of looking at an environment to feel like we don't know enough or everybody out there isn't doing enough. That's pretty universally experienced. So um, uh, how actually true it is is debatable. Um, when you do certain polls, people seem to be more environmentally inclined than they ever were before. But then why aren't the presidential candidates talking about that kind of disconnect? But the actual human connection to the land and the place around them seems to be happening in some way or another. So I usually try and turn that conversation back to where can I be effective now? Throwing yourself against a brick wall, whatever it is, if you think I'm going to take on Walmart or you know the war in Iraq all by myself, yes, you'll use up all of your energy. There's no question. So um, uh, myself, I had chronic fatigue syndrome for a while in my 30s, and it was a really tremendous assistance to my education of how to see where there's tiny little openings and to let the water flow or the energy flow where the tiny openings are and to be effective in the place you choose to work. So um, there, there are many places where we sort of uh, derail our own capacities by feeling overwhelmed, by viewing it as impossible, it, it's by blaming. I mean, we, those are all common human things. So part of our work is to recognize them, that that is, sort of goes with this territory, and then, as you say, to go ahead anyway, but to find where we, where we can go ahead, where someone's opening a door or saying, ah, I'd like to work with you, where, where you generate energy in the process rather than feeling you're burning it up. And since the trend these days is so collaborative, that is the way people are doing environmental work, um, this is actually much easier than it ever was in the past. Um, so it might be that the first level of work is just kind of walking around in your community to see, is anybody interested in us? We're out there in that monastery, but who would like to be friends or who would like to do something with us? You know, like, is there a local Catholic church that might like to do a little fundraising for you for your solar panels? Because it would make them feel good. You know, a different kind of alms bowl here. You know, we're walking around with the bowl and we want solar panels in it. Um, <laughs> So uh, I, I, I think there are days when I feel just uh, absolutely hopeless in a certain way, like, oh, this is impossible, about, about year five of the Bush administration. It was, you know, but, uh, <laughs> no, well, that was a low peak. But, but even today, I mean, I, you go through the ups and downs. So I've, at least as a Buddhist, come to see that one of the practices is learning to identify those mind states and being able to just kind of breathe through them as impermanent and then kind of the go back to work thing. So that's at least the answer I would give at the moment. I, I just, you know, it's, it, it's good to hear that because for me at times I feel like I haven't seen changes yeah. since the 70s, same things, you know. You've got to come to my university, boy. We'll, we'll get you full of inspiration. <laughs> well, I think a lot of us would like to go to her university. <laughs> we, we needn't be totally bound by our schedule, but we're about a half hour beyond the printed schedule. So let's break for 15 minutes before lunch. 
And as Stephanie said earlier, a lot of these issues will still be able to be discussed later on. And I think Father James wants to say something to us. 